0: Hey, everybody. Before we get into the podcast, I want to talk about a really exciting, awesome new sponsor of the show, my good friends, Joe and Kyle over at Psychedelics Today, which is an amazing podcast providing uh, excellent information and education and uh, on harm reduction and psychedelic medicines. They have great guests on every week talking about these very, very important topics. So I highly recommend going to check that out. And, uh, Today we're going to talk with Kyle, he's joining me right now, from Psychedelics Today about their new course, Navigating Psychedelics. And in my opinion, from what I've seen, it's, uh, it's really just a comprehensive uh, overview of getting started in psychedelics, what, you know, the kinds of questions that one might have, the kind of information. So it's a great resource, and I'm really, really super happy and excited to be promoting this. I think it's going to be really beneficial to a lot of people. So Kyle, thanks for joining me today to talk about uh, this amazing work that you and Joe have put together, uh, Psychedelics Today and Navigating Psychedelics. Yeah,
1: thanks for uh, having me here. Yeah. So, navigating psychedelics: uh, lessons on self-care and integration. Uh, it's a uh, pretty much a one hundred and one, one hundred and two psychedelic course. Um, Joe and I put it together from like years of experience of working with these states and also really integrate a lot of our training in holotropic breath work and our our time studying that. So the course really just is a nice arc. Um, Starts off with preparation, what are psychedelics, um, go over harm reduction techniques, testing, safety, um, and then we get into what is the psychedelic experience. Um, We kind of have this nice metaphor of you know, um, a space expedition, right? So what's the preparation like? Um, what is that experience when you kind of get out there in the psychedelic realm? So we go over um, a framework that, that we like to use for understanding these experiences um, comes from Stan Groff, who is a um, pioneer in LSD research um, and uh, and transpersonal psychology. He's been studying this stuff for a long time. And then we on the descent back down, we talk about self-care. How do you, how do we take care of ourselves after an experience? And then the integration process, how are we moving these experiences or these insights forward into our daily lives so we can make some change? And so the course is jam-packed with material. We have 13 or 14 uh, masterclasses um, that include interviews with experts that have been providing integration in the field of psychedelics. Um, And it comes with a bunch of of great resources. Uh, We have a trip journal, an integration workbook, um, which actually you can get a physical copy on Amazon, but um, we have PDF downloads in the course. Um, We have some music playlists, uh, a a brief little breathwork introduction, and tons of tools and and techniques and interviews. It's really a jam-packed course.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's it's just so great to see you guys putting this together. I know that it can benefit so many people. And through your experience, um, you know, this is you're a student of, of these uh, transpersonal uh, psychology and, you know, the holotropic breathwork practices and learning from Stan Groff, you know, taking yours and Joe's experience, as well as the the information and education that you've learned and and are now sharing from others. It's uh, it's really awesome. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's so beneficial because there's so many questions out there and everybody's experiences are different and there's a lot of harms and there's a lot of dangers and there's a lot of what should we look for and what should we avoid? And in my opinion, it seems like you and Joe are right on the leading edge of providing the best updated, most well vetted and, um, educational resources out there. So yeah, I highly recommend people going to check this out. I'm going to have a link in the show notes that you can click on and it will take you directly there. Uh, If you want to go check out their website, it's psychedelics today. And like uh, Kyle was just saying, great introduction to what psychedelics are, to their background, um, to the preparation and safety uh, and reducing harm and having a nice, respectful journey in this process. Um, So Thank you, uh, for Kyle, for coming on and explaining that. Uh, any Anything else that people should know about the course or where to go or anything else that you want, would like to
1: add? Yeah, Joe and I uh, like to say it's the course that we wish we had when we were younger, exploring um, non ordinary states of consciousness. And so, um, yeah, it's just everything we've put together from our own personal experiences and also academic career. Um, you know, I did an undergrad in transpersonal psychology and really took a lot of time analyzing and studying these states of consciousness. Um, And also, yeah, I think, you know, one of the main goals that we like to emphasize about this course is to maximize the benefit and reduce the harm. So keeping people out of um, jail, out of hospitals, and hopefully really maximizing your potential if you are going to engage in this. So really taking a harm reduction approach here, and we really just want people to stay safe.
0: Excellent. Yeah, this is an invaluable uh, resource, guys. And, you know, when working with these medicines or, you know, when just enjoying them recreationally, there's a lot of things that can come up and um, and these guys in my opinion have put together something truly amazing here and I'm happy to share that with the psychedelic crowd so please go check that out psychedelics today I'll put the link in the uh, show notes and um, yeah and 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 check out their podcast and also uh, if there's extra support that's needed I know that uh, you guys offer that as well so uh, thanks thanks again Kyle for sharing that and um, and yeah and uh look forward to Uh, continuing on this journey and and hopefully giving people the best uh, advantage that they can have when navigating this realm. So perfectly titled course, Navigating Psychedelics, uh, Lessons in Self-Care. Go check that out, guys. Uh, Thank you so much again, Kyle and Joe, for putting this together. And thanks for coming on, Kyle, to, to talk about it. Thank you. Welcome, everybody, to the 100th episode. Welcome, welcome to the 100th episode. We made it. We got to 100. We did it. We're in the three digit range now. It is pretty amazing. Pretty nice. I feel pretty, pretty good. And I think this 100th episode, three part series uh, is going to be very enjoyable. Um, Sometimes synchronicities occur in life and it's pretty cool when that happens sometimes we say oh it was luck or coincidence or good timing or something like that but i believe it's something more i believe that when we put our inertia our force our will our desire to create our passion to make things and create the life that we want to create into the universe when we push that out there into reality as steve Jobs says when we Realize that we can poke life and make something pop out on the other side. When we do that, the wheels of the reality creation machine, the synchronicity engine ramps up a little bit more and a little bit more. And certain kinds of people come into your life. As Joseph Campbell says, when you follow your bliss, doors will open where there were only walls before. And I really believe this. I believe this because I experienced this. I know when it, when it does happen and what I'm currently doing in that
2: state to make that happen, and I know when it doesn't happen, and I know it's because I'm not doing
0: that, I'm not putting my inertia, I'm, I'm not putting my, my will into the world, I'm not
2: following my bliss. And when, that, when, when I get into those moments, I realize, oh. I I totally fell asleep at the wheel of the reality creation engine here. I better
0: I better get back in the zone, put my foot on the pedal and start driving forward and then that's when good occurrences happen. So this is just a way of me saying in the way that I rambly <laughs> speak and talk about how I'm where I'm getting to with this is that my good friend Bill Burns the founder of Good Cinema who I met recently moving to Denver here has been putting on these wonderful events uh, at at the Alamo Draft House here and the the point of the events is to bring people together as you guys longtime listeners know um Bill has been on the show before, a couple episodes back. So for this particular event, he happened to be screening a psychedelic-themed movie, Neurons to Nirvana, which is a fantastic film featuring Dennis McKenna, Roland Griffiths uh, from Johns Hopkins, um, De- the, the uh, who else is in the movie? Uh, Rick, Rick Doblin from Maps. Um, many people, Julie Holland, a lot of people in the movie who are prominent figures in the psychedelic research and development phase that we're going through right now. Uh, And uh, Bill uh, hosted this event, put the movie on, and part of the event, part of what Good Cinema does is not just watching a movie and then walking away. This was what Bill had explained to be sort of how, where he identified this problem or this opportunity really to leverage something that that we all enjoy, yet deepening it, making it richer, bringing people together in a physical space, and then as their uh, slogan states, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. So uh, really happy to have met Bill and, and just be a part of collaborating on the, the amazing work that he's doing with Good Cinema, bringing people together. Uh, to enjoy these wonderful thought-provoking documentaries and then bringing panelists in, who we're going to hear today on this recording, bringing panelists in, experts in the field, leading figures to talk about how we can actually take action, how we can actually get involved so that when we watch an interesting thought-provoking documentary and it's educational and it's inspiring, what can we then do? to manifest this change, to actually hop on the, the wheel of the reality creation machine and start driving it in the direction in which we want to see it go. And that, that's how I imagine it to be. Uh, and as I said, I imagine it to be it that way because I've experienced it to be that way. And it's wonderful. These events are amazing. There, you know, people are coming in. They're sitting down. This last event for the psychedelics, um, for the neurons to Nirvana screening, it was about 200 people there, totally packed auditorium at the Alamo Draft House. Uh, we watched the film "Neurons to Nirvana," and then uh, after a short break, they, they had a panel. They brought the panel up. We had Bill moderating the panel. The guests on the panel were Mitchell Gomez of Dance Safe. Sarah Gale of the Zendo Project, former podcast guest. Actually, Sarah was on one of the very earlier Adelic episodes when I didn't even have a microphone, and I recorded it just out of my MacBook. I think it was like episode 18. I remember recording in my Lower East Side apartment in, in my kitchen. That was, yeah, about... Yeah, one of the earliest episodes Sarah was a part of. So, so good to see her again and uh, hear her share what she's working on and her experiences on the panel, which you'll hear through this. And we also have, uh, we had um, Kevin Matthews, uh, who was on the show recently, the campaign director for Decriminalize Denver. Matt Kale, another wonderful human being who I recently met uh, at his Veterans for Natural Rights meetings, bringing veterans together, talking about important issues, ways to heal, ways to connect and reintegrate back into society, into the community. Matt's doing some amazing work, and he's also part of a, a new documentary called From Shock to Awe, which uh, I still haven't seen yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing. So there's Matt Kale up there from Veterans for Natural Rights, and then Katie Klum from the NOAC Society. And um, it was just A really, really wonderful uh, event. So many great people that I saw out there. Shout out to um, Monica, uh, Brittany, um, Brittany's husband, who I did not get to meet, but I'm looking forward to meeting. Um, Other people that I can't think of right now off the top of my head, but uh, thank you to everybody. Uh, Tim, uh, Brian, just like so many wonderful people that I met at the event. Was so great to connect with and see people face to face. You know, a lot of times, a lot of times doing this podcast and sort of living in this digital world is very disconnecting, even though the things that we're talking about on the show are very important and educational at times and, um, you know, philosophically stimulating and inspiring and engaging. There's still
2: a, isolated nature to what the internet can truly deliver, Uh, or
0: should I say there's an isolated nature to how we can kind of default, like defaultly accept um, the internet as is, you know, as, as just kind of relying on it for its singular use and purpose of distributing information and connecting with people virtually and these things. But if we can leverage the internet to bring, start bringing people together, if we can start using this tool as a technology to actually bring people together face-to-face, to me, that seems like really um, the, the way to go about using this thing to get the most fulfillment and satisfaction out of it. Because I've experienced this firsthand Coming out to events, meeting people,
2: and connecting with people has been one of the major leveling ups in in my life and for the show. And
0: it's 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 really uh, something happens when people are in and fit and you're in the physical presence. Something happens when, you're, when you are in the physical, energetic presence of other people that can't be replicated or duplicated on screens, online, on social media. It just can't.
2: And so, you know, I, I think that I myself, like my, many people out there, like, like all human beings do,
0: we get enamored with a bright, shiny new toy, and we dive into it, and we get obsessed with it, and we play with it. And we, sometimes we can get lost with it. And that, that's sort of the typical kind of phase that happens when something new and novel and interesting is pre- presented into your life. It really can become very, very engaging. But then when we start to understand its full scope, its full potential, its full possibility and reach and align that with what we're truly feeling inside of our hearts and where we feel like we feel the most fulfillment and satisfaction from being a human being alive in this experience. And I, for myself, that is connecting with other people and and being a part of communities. And I know that's, that's the case with m- many people out there. Many people would say the same thing. So it's just a long, another long way of me getting to the point of, Man, it, it just feels good to be at these events. It feels great to meet people in person. It feels really, really nice to have people come up to you and, and talk with you about these kinds of things. It feels good to do it online as well, but the, the, there's a different kind of energetic frequency when you're around, uh, when you're around people that really lifts the, the collective up. You know, I, I think that we can... Try and elevate each other and lift each other up as much as we can on on the internet, but when in the presence of other human beings who are inspiring and exciting um there's a there's a whole nother level there's a whole nother level of the reality creation machine that can occur that we can all start getting and little parts of the of the machine and and operating it together that uh doesn't necessarily seem to happen. Uh, in the same kind of way, purely on the internet, so it's it's just really amazing to to get out and connect with with people and you know another like simple kind of maybe cliche realization that I had the other day, but I will say this about simple and cliched seeming realizations at some point in time, you could be presented with information that you logically understand you you intellectually understand it but there's another kind of understanding that occurs when you're taking in that same information from different sensory input data points from turning the
2: the telescope just like 1 degree it makes a, it makes a big difference and so that
0: understanding i've always this understanding that i'm about to say i've always kind of intellectually known but to actually sort of experience it, embody it, and know it at a deeper level, maybe emotionally or at a soul level, it just it just deepens that understanding and there's mo- and there's more insight that can be released in a not in necessarily in a linguistic way, but in a different kind of information dissemination that uh, that we just kind of embody and understand on an, on an, another level, so that was like look we. We are all one. We are all connected, and this was a message that was discussed in the Neurons Nirvana film
2: many times. And because, because of this, we have a, a, a connection that's unbreakable. But in this human realm, in this human game, we are all separated, and we have
0: subjective, subjective experiences. So when I see other people doing amazing things and inspiring
2: things you know dedicating their time working hard to actively to make people better heal to improve relationships with individuals
0: and to make society and culture better when I see that happening it's like yeah There's a there's a piece of me that's doing something that I just don't have the bandwidth to do, you know, like all of us human beings are operating on the same electrical current frequency. And there's many things that we that we like and that we see out there and that we're fans of or that we support. And it's great. We wish that we could be doing all of these things. Right. At least I feel this way. I feel like I could be doing I want to do so many different things. But I'm so glad that there's people out there that are doing those things. And when they're out there, we want to meet them. We want to support them. We want to collaborate with them. We want to showcase what they're doing. Because really, the thing that we need the most as human beings, and and this this is why we love the internet so much, this is why social media is so popular, is because it's trying to fill that hole that we all so desperately crave to be connected with each other, to share, to be uh, appreciated, to be loved. I mean, every single person on the planet really just deeply down wants to be loved.
2: And they want love. And, you know, I've been in that position before, desiring love. Like, I want love. I want someone to love me. I want this. I want this thing. How do I get it? Where is it? Where does it come from? Maybe it's over here. Maybe it's over there. Maybe it's in that thing. But I, I
0: posted this um, thing that I said, uh, I just posted it in text on Instagram.
2: I said, you don't find love. You become it. And love finds you. And I, and I believe that. I believe that again because I, I know it to be true that at the, at the moments in which i have embodied that presence of being love i've attracted love and like i said it's it's cliche you know to say but i understand it deeper now because i've had different experiences and so you know with the
0: good cinema event with this podcast with the panel that we're about to hear you know, it's all about, like, this this experience and this awareness. You'll hear the, uh, several panelists say, you know, it's, it's about the community. It's about connection. It's about, you know, raising awareness. It's about getting out there, sharing your stories, um, telling people. Uh, Bill mentions in the beginning, coming out of the psychedelic closet. I believe this was a, a phrase um, that Rick Doblin initially said. And I made a video about this a little while ago, too. Um, Coming out, speaking out, talking to other people about these things. Share your experience. As I've said in in other episodes, be the good reporter that's reporting the truth of your news to the world. Not don't be delivering, you know, fake news from from your life experience out into the world. It just pollutes, it pollutes things. It makes it murkier, cloudier, more challenging. So if we can all show up as really good investigative reporters of our human experience and sharing that, sharing that news with with people. That's the ultimate reality creation machine. That's the ultimate, like, let's start actually creating an environment in which we really feel that we're enjoying it and others are enjoying it, and this is an enjoyable life experience that we can lead. This is an enjoyable... Reality that we that we can be a part of and also help build, and so I, I just think that this is this is what I see happening uh, from a hundred episodes of Mike Adelic to now. This is the number one thing that I see that is happening more and more of more people coming out talking about this, more associations and clubs and meetups, more projects, more groups, more circles, more you know. Trips are are, people are going and doing more things to find a way back to becoming love, to healing themselves, to kindness, compassion, and empathy
2: for seeing themselves in others, and then collaborating on happiness. So, with that being said, with that being said. All right. So now
0: that that's taken care of, now that we've wrapped that up, well, I appreciate all of you very much. Thank you so much. 100 episodes. I couldn't have done it without all of you out there listening. Um, and I, this was the first time that, uh, in part two, we're going to hear a live podcast recording that I did in the bar next door after the event. And, um, it was great, you know. People hung out, they stuck around, they listened. So I want to do more of these live podcast events. That's something that I'm looking forward to, and I hope you guys are going to be excited about as well. So the first part of this uh, podcast is going to be Bill, founder of Good Cinema, moderating the panel that occurred after the Neurons to Nirvana uh, screening. We're going to hear from all those wonderful people on the stage, and then. The second part will be the podcast that I recorded in Barfly next door with uh, a new group of panelists, um, and we're going to be kind of expanding upon the the evening's events, talking about uh, psychedelics and, and therapy and healing, how, it, how to bring people together and these sorts of things. Wonderful conversation. So that'll be part two. And then part three of the 100th episode, Spectacular is uh I'm going to do a solo cast. So a little kind of taste of of this rambling intro. I'll put my thoughts together more into a solo podcast where I really want to expand on this this journey that the podcast has been on my personal journey, where I've gone, what I've learned, what I've done and you know how this psychedelic project and this you know Mike Brancatelli life project are merging and what is, you know, what is the evolution looking like and my thoughts and opinions and things like that. So that'll be part three of this um series. I'm just I'm just really happy. I'm really happy that we've made it to a hundred episodes and, you know, that there's a, a really cool community out there of people and that these sorts of things that that I've been thinking about for a long time and, you know, struggling to um, work to, to kind of make them a reality are, are becoming a reality. And it's, and it's, it's very, very exciting to see. And so again, I couldn't have done it without you people that are listening out there. So I just, I love you all so much. And you have been an integral part of the show, letting me know what you like, what's, you know, what's been helpful, what you don't like, you know, uh, just all the feedback that you provide, all the messages that you send the stories that you've shared with me over the years. It's been fantastic. So more on this kind of stuff in the part three uh, episode. But for now, I want to get to the panel discussion. But uh, thank you so much. Again, I'm going to be talking more about the show and all that kind of stuff in a solo episode that I'm going to release. Part two will be the live podcast that I recorded with a, a, t- a totally different panel of people. Um. So, yeah. Thank you so much. If you want to support the show, you can go on to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review. We have like 145 right now. So getting close, it'd be awesome to get to 200. It just really kind of amplifies the message that you like the show, you like what's going on, you like what's being talked about, and you want more people to hear it. So. Obviously you, don't know, you don't, obviously, you don't need someone to tell you what to do when you like something. So it's pretty easy. If you like this, just find me. Check it out. Just support, show your support. Show your love. Every little bit helps. Um, yeah, and that's, that's really it. Um, let's just get into the panel discussion. Once again, Bill Burns, uh, founder of Good Cinema, moderating panel discussion with Sarah Gale of the Zendo Project, um, Mitchell Gomez of Dance Safe. Uh, Katie Klum of the NOAC Society, Kevin Matthews of Decriminalized Denver, and Matt Kale of Veterans for Natural Rights. So let's, let's listen to them. Let's see what they have to say. And then I'll see you at the end of that. And then again for part two and three. I should mention that the audio recording was not so great. So please uh, keep that in mind. It was filmed and it was recorded in a large auditorium uh, several different microphones and things like this. So, uh, the audio recording is not what you're used to on this podcast. Uh, and for part two, the same, same kind of thing. First live episode that I recorded at a bar. So, uh, we're still kind of working out the kinks. The audio recording is not the best, not what you're used to. Uh, it's not terrible. It's not inaudible, but, uh, it's definitely not up to the quality that, uh, the podcast is, is usually putting out. So, um, but the things that people are saying in these conversations are worth it. It's amazing. So please uh, stick around and, and listen to the whole thing. And uh, I think you're really, really going to get a lot out of this. It's going to be very educational, very inspiring. Uh, That's the way that I felt about it. And I hope you do too. So without further ado, let's go to Bill uh, hosting and moderating the Good Cinema Neuron Strivana panel and let's hear from the wonderful guests. All right, guys, I'll catch you at the end of this panel discussion.
2: Psychedelics are illegal
3: not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve
4: opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information
3: processing. Open to us the possibility that everything you know is wrong. We don't need
0: new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty.
5: The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject
6: authority. Authority is a lie. Or is perception? Information is power, but we have to seize, seize the opportunity. The opportunity. Seize. The opportunity. The opportunity.
7: Uh, great, well, yeah. thanks everyone for hanging out. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get things uh, kicked off here with a quick introduction from everyone. Uh, but first off, just a few ground rules. One, this is a safe, open space, meaning you are open to share, open to be vulnerable, open to ask whatever questions you'd like, but no hate speech will be allowed. Uh, let's keep it nice. Let's keep the compassion and love, y'all. Uh, also, uh, please keep your questions, comments, responses, what have you, to a minute or less. We want to keep this more conversational and open. Also, we will be opening questions, comments uh, from the audience immediately. So, uh, this is going to be a 360 discussion, not just me talking to panelists and then y'all having questions at the end. Uh, so, please get involved. Um, if you are not comfortable speaking but still would like to be involved in the discussion, we have a way that you can do so. Text good to 94502. Uh, that enables you to uh, submit questions or comments and it gets you entered to win a free year Gaia membership. So, a little perk there. Uh, yeah, so without, without further ado, I'll go ahead and uh, start
5: here with uh, Mitchell. Uh, hi, I'm Mitchell. Uh, I'm the executive director of DanSafe. Uh, DanceSafe is a 501c3 public health nonprofit. Uh, we do a lot of things. Uh, we give out an absurd amount of condoms and earplugs at music events every year, and lots of non-biased drug information, if you guys saw the table outside. Uh, the thing that we're sort of famous slash infamous for doing is we were the first non-governmental organization anywhere in the world that was doing on-site reagent drug testing. So we set up at events, people can bring us their drugs, we can chemically analyze them and then provide appropriate harm reduction messaging around that substance, whether it's what the person thought it was or not. Uh, the not part of it tends to fluctuate over time. Uh, we've definitely had years where in the United States, about 70% of what was being sold as ecstasy was something other than MDMA. Uh, thankfully, that number is no longer the case. There's new, new recipes that have been published on the internet, uh, but yeah, that's sort of our sort of... The core of what we do is drug education, and trying to weed out uh, adulterated substances caused by drug prohibition.
2: Hi,
8: my name is Sarah Gale, and I work with MAPS and the Zinda Project. I have two roles, so with MAPS I've been a investigator on the MDMA for PTSD clinical trials since 2014. And I've also been working with the Zendo Project since 2012. I'm currently the director, and the Zendo Project provides peer support services at events all around the world, so harm reduction, safe spaces for people to come or having challenging psychedelic experiences. I also work in a private practice um, with ketamine-assisted psychotherapy for uh, treatment-resistant depression.
9: My name is Kevin Matthews. I'm the campaign director of the Denver Psilocybin Initiative. And I'm one of the many leaders for our organization that is working to decriminalize the adult personal possession and personal use of psilocybin mushrooms in the city and county of Denver. And um, I know that we have a lot of our our teammates in the audience tonight, so if if everyone who's involved with the campaign would please stand up. That'd be amazing. Um, As you know, we have the vote will be on May 7th, which is in in exactly six weeks from today. And so we hope, well I hope that tonight we can answer all of your questions and um, please feel free to afterwards um, come see us at Barfly and uh, ask anybody here who's involved tonight um, just about our campaign if there's any questions that we don't get to address this evening. thank you.
3: Hi, uh, my name is Matthew Gale. I am Executive Director of Veterans for Natural Rights. I founded it back in 2014 um, as a result of uh, experiences with cannabis and psychedelics. I didn't know what I deserved uh, or what what I had to do to deserve the healing that I had gotten from these substances and uh, the universe just told me to change the world, so uh, that's what I'm trying to do.
6: I'm Katie Klum. Um, I'm here representing the NOAC Society. We're a nonprofit who uh, we aim to look at our relationship to psychedelics and so psychopharmaceuticals and uh, bring a new dialogue into this so that we can be in right relationship to these substances. We also really work towards education that's non biased and bringing other groups together because this movement has to happen with all of us.
7: Thank you all so much. And, you know, in an event like this, I'd like to first start off by coming out of the psychedelic closet. And so, those of you out there that might have an experience that you'd like to share, a um, way that psychedelics have impacted your lives, uh, would love to hear from you. You know, I think the more that we hear real human stories, the more we're able to. Transcend this, uh, this propaganda that's been perpetuated. So uh, if anyone feels comfortable sharing, please raise your hand We have uh, people with mics to come around um, and uh, we'll get started by having our panelists um, share
10: some of their experiences
6: uh, to get this going I guess I'll start because I have the microphone um, I work as a therapist also and so a whole big part of doing this job is for me to do my own healing and I've done a lot of talk therapy But I really found that when I integrated uh, psychedelics into this healing, that's when I really began began to see the most change for myself and and the most healing. I obviously am biased towards therapy, and I think that works too. But there is a way that, um, particularly with psilocybin, that it sped up my process and really allowed me access to different parts of myself that I wasn't even aware of. So it gets into the implicit memory that. Is really necessary for healing some of my own stuff and I really believe that we have the right to be happy and healthy on this planet and if these substances help facilitate that I want to be an advocate for it so from my own experiences that's how I really got into this movement and really feel like it's necessary to share in order to um, bring down some of the implicit bias that exists in our culture.
3: I'm a veteran, um, as you can probably guess from the name of my organization. Uh, I was medevaced from my second deployment to Afghanistan with uh, facial trauma. I lost a small piece of my upper jaw, facial fractures, traumatic brain injury, cervical, thoracic, lumbosacral, spinal injuries, and um, I was on a whole ton of uh, psychotropic medications, Uh, all of the, the pills that the doctor provided really didn't help me get at the root of the issue. Um, and what I found out later is that really my most significant injury from that incident was uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. And um, I circled the drain for a very long time and uh, finally came across cannabis. And uh, I was offered a chance to do psychedelics on camera for a movie. And I, I jumped at the opportunity. Anything I I could do to try to fix myself I was willing to, and um, after that I I knew that these substances could help as soon as I tried ayahuasca for the first time, and um, I sought to explore each and every single one after that. Um, It was a crazy year, 2016, but I I emerged from it uh, a much better, more rounded and whole person.
9: Civil has been integral for me overcoming major depression. Um, I'm a veteran myself. I served as a cadet at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and um, spent, gosh, about 10 years of my life working to get in there. And while I was at the academy, I, well, went through a traumatic experience struggling with depression and anxiety. And, and at the time, the Army did not have the tools to um, really get to the root of those issues. And um, so, thankfully, um, I, I give a lot of respect to the U.S. Army because I, I did receive a medical discharge. I am retired from the U.S. Army. And, and after going on a downward spiral for, spiral for a couple of years, um, I was able to reconnect with an amazing community here in Denver that responsibly reintroduced me to psilocybin. And it was it was mushrooms that enabled me to finally see a perspective outside the box that depression had created. And and from that moment on, I was I mean, I was I was ready. I was willing to not only look at my life and look at the issues that I had, but also look for other tools and other opportunities to cope with the symptoms that I was having. And so for me, psilocybin mushrooms have been a major catalyst towards really improving and and transforming my life, and enabling me to uh, jump back into my life, and jump back into my community, and start to um, really just really feel alive again. And so for me, the reason why I'm here, and, and why I'm a part of this campaign, is because from the research, we know that psilocybin has such tremendous potential for a lot of people in our society. And there is absolutely no reason for people to be criminalized, for people to go to jail, um, to lose their families, their jobs, or their livelihood for possessing something that has such tremendous value and so much potential. And so um, I'm here as really just as a representative of this movement and to share my story and also to encourage um, everyone to stand up and step up and stand out for um you know, for, for their beliefs using psilocybin and other psychedelics as a transformative mechanism to improve their lives. Thank you.
8: So my voyages began at a really early age, um, when I was in high school, amongst other uh, perfectly legal substances um, such as alcohol and um, well, not this at the time, but <laughs>
6: yeah, Colorado. Uh-huh. Um,
8: but yeah, I grew up um, in New Mexico and in a small town, Taos, and it was there was a lot of drug use in that town and all across the board. And so psychedelics were really just thrown in the mix as like just another option amongst the many to explore. And so for me, it really began. Um, as a quest to escape from pain that I was experiencing as a young one, as an adolescent, and um, early, you know, some childhood trauma and experiences. My own father actually um, died from an overdose, from a heroin overdose, when I was 15. And so, you know, there's a couple different ways that can go. One for a young person is, okay, drugs are absolutely horrible, and the other one is, um, wow, you know, what was, what was dad experiencing? And dad was really cool and I loved him and I want to be like dad. So I'm going to try the things. <laughs> and so from, in, from a relatively early age, around 15, 16, um, I was exploring and I really, uh, I didn't know at the time how much that exploration into the psychedelic realm was actually influencing me in really positive ways because it was just thrown in with everything else. And I didn't know that it was an attempt at healing, and that taking different things from a variety, you know, it was an attempt at healing. And so um, later on in my early twenties, I stopped any exploration and really explored sobriety and. Um, it wasn't until grad school, actually, when I was studying at Neuropa University and uh, studying transpersonal therapy and went to a transpersonal conference and saw Rick Doblin speak on MDMA for the treatment of PTSD. And I was like, whoa, this is actually a thing. And this is actually happening out there, and it's actually happened before. And th- this research has happened before, and this therapy is like something that was happening in the '60s, and I wasn't aware of. So it was a really eye-opening experience for me, and really, um, I think that at that point, I reflected a lot on how psychedelics had impacted my life in a way that I hadn't really considered and thought about deeply, and. Um, from that point, I joined with community in Boulder and met others who um, had had experiences and connected with students there and helped to co-found the Naropa Alliance for Psychedelic Studies, um, which was a student group that aimed to—that still aims it's still running—to uh, create dialogue around the intersection of psychedelics and different subjects that are studied at Naropa, so psychology, religion, spirituality. Uh, environmental science and um, after starting that group I um, we h- held a symposium and one of the women who came to speak was Marcella O'Tallara who's the principal investigator for uh, the Boulder MDMA for PTSD study and so she was kind of my gatekeeper into the world of maps and into the world of the Zender Project and she said hey do you want to go to Burning Man and provide peer support and I was like what? What's that? <laughs> and, uh, you know, after, I so I went to Burning Man and I worked with the Zendo Project in its first iteration there in 2012 as the Zendo Project. Maps had provided peer support there um, and at other events before. But uh, I realized that with the Zendo Project, what I saw was a lot of what I had been missing as a youth and really... Um, in my explorations was that container for my experiences. And so I saw a lot of things go wrong for a lot of my friends and things in ways in which, um, you know, my own challenging
6: experiences.
8: And so I really, when I found this Zendo Project, found a way to serve that really sang to my heart um, because I definitely was familiar with um, witnessing and experiencing challenging drug experiences, and so I really now feel like it's part of my, um, yeah, it's just my career and my profession is all psychedelic, right, ketamine, MDMA, (laughs) peer support, and I feel just very grateful to be working with these medicines in both the clinical um, aspects or the clinical Realm as well as the recreational realm, because I think that as we work to medicalize and decriminalize these substances, we do need to have a really balanced look at not just the benefits but also the risks associated and work to mitigate those risks because, um, yeah, it's important for us to have a really educated and balanced perspective. So,
6: that's a little bit about me, or a lot about me, actually. (laughs)
5: So my my personal history with psychedelics actually predates my ability to acquire psychedelics. Uh, So when I was uh, 9 or 10, my family moved from Colorado. I'm a sixth-generation Colorado native, very suited to this climate, to Florida, a climate I was not suited to. (laughs) Uh, And the way I dealt with that was by spending a lot of time in libraries and reading as much as I could about a lot of subjects. And when I was about 10, I came across uh, Metzner and and Leary's uh, manual based on the uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead. They're sort of, what are they, the psychedelic? psychedelic like experience a manual based on the Book of the Dead. And man, the idea that there were substances you could take that did not did not impair your ability to interact with reality, but expanded your ability to interact with reality that opened your mind was something I'd never really I had never heard of, had never considered, and I found it incredibly fascinating. I went on a reading tear of every book I could get my hands on. Arrowhead didn't exist yet, the internet barely existed, but there was the Hive, which was an early Usenet group for psychedelics, and I was like 11 years old on the Hive, like way out of my league, you
2: know?
5: Um, But I thought that psychedelics were primarily a thing that had existed in the 1960s and that the government had effectively wiped out. Uh, the first time I ha- ever had anyone tell me that psychedelics were still a thing was in a dare office. It was a dare officer in a class uh, who told us if you know people offered you small squares of paper, it could have something called LSD on it, which could make you go crazy. Uh, which I at that point knew was completely bullshit. But I did have some other follow-up questions about the sorts of people I should be looking to avoid hanging out with. <laughs> uh, and he mentioned raves. And I think it was probably two months later that I convinced an older friend to drive me my first. Rave in Central Florida. (laughs) So I was, you know, 14 years old at a some, you know, warehouse rave in Orlando. Uh, It took me a long time to actually get anyone to sell me psychedelics. Shockingly, the fat goth 14 year old kid was not like high on the list of people who people were willing to sell drugs to. Um, I was able to get ecstasy very very quickly at 14. I started taking MDMA, Uh, took it pretty regularly for quite a long time. Uh, My first sort of serious high school girlfriend, had been killed by a drunk driver, and I had been had a lot of difficulty dealing with that, and MDMA was the whole reason that I felt able to connect with people again, and I felt it was an incredible substance. Uh, but yeah, I, I really, my interest in psychedelics way predates my first psychedelic experience by many, many, many years. And I think that was really good for me, I do. I think that so many people get handed things that they have no idea what they're taking, Uh, I was a very irresponsible user in my youth, but the drug markets were a lot safer in the late 90s and early 2000s. It wasn't as dangerous as it is now. You know, occasionally, worst case scenarios, occasionally you'd get handed a pill that was more methamphetamine than MDMA, and you'd be awake a little bit longer, but there's a reason people take meth, right? It's a, a drug of use on its own. It's not like now where we have anethylpentalone showing up in pills, which is a very, very sort of scary substituted cathinone that causes long-term amphetamine psychosis after a single administration. It wasn't It wasn't like that in the late 90s, so I could be irresponsible and still be alive. Uh, but I genuinely believe I wouldn't be alive without MDMA and psychedelics. I genuinely think I probably would have ended up killing myself over the, the trauma that I experienced uh, in my youth. I, I really do think that. And so I feel a, a tremendous moral obligation to try to help people safely use these substances. Um, I'm actually a little biased against medical, the medicalization of psychedelics. I actually think that what we need is societal integration of psychedelics. Uh, I think most of the issues that we're facing as a species, from the collapse of our biosphere to the politics of hate to resource <coughs> depletion, are all tied to the inability of a large number of people on this planet to truly feel empathy. Um, And the the empathy deficit is sort of the main resource deficit that we need to fix before we can fix any of these other problems. I think it was actually Rick who was arguing in the eighties that we shouldn't call it ecstasy; that it should be called empathy. That that's that that was the name that drug should have had. It doesn't quite work as well with the marketing, you know. Like, ecstasy is really a, a catchy name. I, I'm for sure. I for sure know it's Rick who once quipped, "There's a reason no one ever suggested calling it mild amusement." <laughs> um, but but I think empathy is a, a good name for for MDMA. I think that's an appropriate name uh, because pure MDMA taken in uh, appropriate dosage for people's weight and, and, you know, past tolerance, isn't a particularly ecstatic, stimulating drug. It works so well for therapy because you're willing to sit there and talk about your feelings. Uh, methamphetamine-assisted <laughs> psychotherapy would not be as effective, right? You still talk, but just not as effective. And so, yeah, I, I think that uh, the integration I'm really interested in is is less about personal integration of the psychedelic experiences. That's very important. It's It's really critical to the safe use of these substances, but I think that for me, this is fundamentally a question of of civil liberties. I'm a cognitive libertarian. I think that human beings have a right to alter their consciousness any way they want. And that includes ways that are potentially dangerous or demonstrably dangerous to the individual user. There's a million things in this society that we let people do that are incredibly dangerous, and we let people do it because it's their fucking right to do it. Uh, So, uh, so, uh, Jack Davies, who I went to a new college with, is now with the Drug Policy Alliance, and he once did a paper that was a comparative risk of various human activities, taking MDMA, an hour of driving, an hour of swimming, skydiving, all these different things. And it turns out the most dangerous thing that you can do in society in terms of an hour of activity leading to hospitalization is cheerleading. Uh, Cheerleading is an incredibly dangerous activity. It should probably, if we're going to outlaw anything, uh, you know, it's orders of magnitude more dangerous than taking any illegal drug, including heroin or cocaine. Uh, I I really tried to convince him to title the study, Give Me an E. He didn't publish it under that. I thought that was the perfect title, personally, but uh, I think that, for me, psychedelics are, I I don't particularly use psychedelics a whole ton anymore, I just, I, I work too much. I don't really have eight hours I can, like, block off in any given time. Um, but uh, the knowledge that these substances exist, the knowledge that they can be used safely if you know what you're taking, if you follow appropriate harm reduction messaging, and the fact that people can uh, truly develop empathy for the rest of humanity, I think is, is the largest missing piece of the puzzle. If you're looking for how to fix any global problem, this is a piece of the puzzle. And I want to end with just two lines from a poem that the Tea Fairy wrote. If you guys don't know the Tea Fairy, you should find her blog on your and follow it. Uh, She wrote a poem called Mapping the Source about 5-methoxy-DMT, found in certain tree snuffs in South America, and the only psychedelic amphibian, uh, the bufo toad from Sonoran Desert, is the only known psychedelic amphibian. And the line is: uh, We all know we know we're all one in some thin nerdy way. We exchange lots of data. We roll in the hay. But this isn't just something that flaky folks say. An intensive convincing's just three tokes away. <laughs>
7: Thank you so much, everyone. That was wonderful. Uh, if there are, uh, if there's no one in the audience that wants to say anything. Uh, We can go ahead and uh, jump into some more uh, questions here. I noticed one common theme uh, throughout everything that you all had to share, and that was trauma. And I'd love to explore trauma itself. Uh, I know, Matt, you've, you know, obviously gone through a lot of trauma that we see common and perpetuated in our military industrial complex, PTSD. But I think what you've said to me has been so profound that we all go through trauma and, you know, ranking trauma isn't helpful. The fact that all of us experience trauma at some point is, and so I'd love to hear you guys kind of talk about trauma and how you see psychedelics fitting into that as, as maybe an answer and a way past that. Uh, I'll start really,
5: really briefly and then I'll, I'll hand it over. I, uh, I think
2: being a human being is a sort of intrinsically traumatic thing for the vast majority of us throughout the
5: vast majority of human history. Uh, you know, my my wife and I are on a bit of a naked and afraid kick. We're watching our way through that, and the realization of like what humanity lived through before we had industry is like kind of horrifying, right? Like when most of us were born in a pre-industrial society, but even in industrial society, I think the number of well-adjusted individuals is vanishingly small. I think the, the trauma is real. It's it's widespread, and it's linked to global capitalism. It's linked to the history of colonialism in this country and globally, and the fact that you know all of us have been. Displaced from our from our histories and from our origins, but I think part of that displacement is the the deintegration of psychedelics that happened in Western society through both drug prohibition and also earlier through the Inquisition. Uh, I, I was doing research for a, a book that I swear I'll write someday on the history of psychedelics, and the first drug law I could find written anywhere. It was a general prohibition. There were laws in ancient Greece against the personal use of the elusive mysteries, but there was any Greek citizen who had not murdered someone could go and experience the mysteries, which was an ergot-infused drink, almost certainly. It was, it, was LSD. it was an LSD beer that the Greeks had figured out, and any Greek citizen who hadn't committed murder could go take it once in their life. Um, and it was the source of Plato's cave allegory. I mean, you know, all sorts of Western philosophy came from acid beer. Uh, but the first general prohibition law I found was an edict by the Spanish Inquisition banning the use of what they were calling peyote, but actually meant all psychoactive substances. So what we now call peyote is just the, the, the cactus from Mexico, but originally that meant all of the things the Aztecs had access to, which caused it any sort of change in their consciousness from mushrooms to what we now call peyote. San Pedro, uh, they were definitely importing San Pedro from South America, they were smoking salvia divinorum, they were almost certainly smoking the excretions from the bubo toad, or at least smoking the toad skin, although I can see Rafael saying we have no evidence of that from here, I can see the off um, And so uh, yeah, that was the first drug law. The first general drug law was an edict by the Spanish Inquisition. This is an inquisitorial system of control, and it happened in Europe too. There was all sorts of very interesting psychoactive substances that were used in Europe before Christianity came in, most of them based on the datura alkaloids, uh, the witches' ointments, which shockingly work very well if you put them on a broomstick and put it up inside you, right, riding a broom. Um, uh, vaginal administration of the datura alkaloids works very well, and so that's where riding the broom Mythology around witches almost certainly came from, and so yeah, we've had a 1500 year history now, or 2000 year history of psychedelics being forced out of society. But the reality is, psychedelics have been used by every human culture that has access to them. Right? I mean, that's unless you're an, unless you're an Inuit in the Arctic Circle, you used psychedelics. And some of the oldest human art we have, the cave the cave paintings in North Africa and Sealy are the mushroom the mushroom man with the bee face. You know, if you're living in a world that doesn't have refrigeration or dehydration, the only way to store psilocybin mushrooms is to put them in honey. Uh, painting a bee-faced mushroom man on the side of the cave walls is about as close to an instruction manual as you can get without writing. Um, and so some of the earliest sort of transmission of knowledge we have is here's how to take mushrooms to preserve them, like painted on a cave wall 10,000 years before we figured out how to write the number one. Uh, it's, the, it's the origin of knowledge, and so yeah, I think that's that's where it's at is healing the societal trauma that really in large part stems from the de- 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 deintegration of
6: psychedelics.
10: Yeah, go ahead.
6: Testy. <laughs> yeah. uh, hey guys. Um, so my name is Lacey Messi. I currently work for a company here in Denver. I moved here about a week and a half ago. Uh, Uh, I've been involved in drug testing for a short period of time, and I was wondering what kind of platform you use in the field, because I know certain instrumentation needs a pretty controlled environment to produce reliable results. So I'm I'm wondering what you're using (laughs) that doesn't have that kind of environment around it. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
5: so Danse primarily uses reagent testing, which is uh, not as ideal as laboratory analysis for sure, but if you use multiple reagents on a single sample, you can dial down pretty well with the substances. Uh, it's certainly not as good as putting a GCMS in a box truck. Uh, I definitely do not have the $600,000 to build a GCMS box truck and then hire a structural elucidation chemist to come and like, live in my box truck. Uh, we are currently trying to buy an FTIR. Uh, the FTIR we're looking at is uh, the Bruker Alpha, which comes with a, uh, you can buy an upgrade for it, which basically makes it for use for the US military for explosives analysis because the chemical profiles of different roadside bombs can help you figure out who is building those bombs. Uh, so the Bruker has a, a sort of desert-ready uh, system, and so that's what we're trying to buy, since I will be taking it to Burning Man. Uh, I figured the, the, if it can survive what the U.S. Navy throws at it for explosives analysis, I figured Burning Man would probably be okay. <laughs> uh, but right now we're just using reagent testing, but generally an eight-panel of reagents to avoid the sort of false-positive issues that law enforcement deals with, with their single-use reagent tests, Um, but for anyone who's curious, the law enforcement single-use reagent tests that give false positives, those are doing exactly what the end consumer wants them to do. They're not interested in drug analysis. They're interested in chemically manufacturing probable cause. Um, So anytime you hear that reagent testing is is giving false positives, that's a little little bit of a misnomer. Law enforcement just wants to be able to search your car. Um, So they work quite well if you use eight of them. They don't work quite as well if you use those
6: single-use end kits.
3: Okay, so I guess I'll go back to the trauma. Um, when I was medevac from my second deployment, um, I, I was deeply injured in here and in here. I didn't really realize it at first. It took me a long time to, to figure that out. But um, when I did, I sort of had a, a, a prejudice. Um, many veterans who have been on the front line... They tend to think that if you haven't been kicking down doors, blowing stuff up, and killing people, you don't have PTSD. And um, I got into the civilian world, and I came across veterans in my advocacy who had never seen combat. And they would say things like, you know, I never really experienced what you experienced, but um, this is what happened to me. And sometimes I would get the most insane horrifying stories that i've ever heard in my entire life and after hearing those things i would say hey you may not think you deserve the acronym ptsd but you do absolutely you do and gradually I, I came across more and more civilians who had even more horrific stories um and i realized that Trauma is not really, it's not a veteran issue, and it's not even an American issue. This is a human issue. Everybody has trauma sometime in their life. Uh, Trauma is basically a deeply disturbing experience that changes your life for the remainder of it. Um, And I'm pretty sure most people have those experiences somewhere in the past. And they, you know, comparing one trauma to another, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not useful. the only question really is, is, does it? how did it affect you and how did it change your life? How did it change the way that you related to other people? And um, oftentimes these things are extremely uh, comparable all across the spectrum. Um, Dr. Gabor Monte, he said uh, something like, alienation from ourselves um, is, is one major issue in our society. And... Um, That's one of the the main features of of PTSD. Uh, One thing that most people don't talk about is isolation and how we self-isolate and how other people isolate us and um, we feel alone. And eventually you get to feeling so alone, you end up taking your life. And um, there's a common statistic out there. 22 veterans a day commit suicide. But a lesser-known statistic is that 121 individuals in Regular society, they commit suicide every single day, and we're in the middle of an opioid epidemic right now. One hundred ninety-eight people are committing suicide via uh, addiction and overdose because addiction is suicide on an installment plan. So this is it's it's all across the board. Uh, People are trying to medicate their issues, medicate these things into oblivion. Sometimes with heroin, with Fentanyl with uh, Oxycontin, with cocaine, methamphetamine, you name it. All of these things are an attempt to medicate the trauma. Unresolved childhood trauma is most often the case. It's childhood. Childhood when we form our opinions and our ideas about who we are as individuals. And, um, so trauma is really the, the, the root cause. We, we actually, um, made all of our uh, assumptions about addiction based on a series of experiments in the 1950s and we would lock a rat in a cage give them access to water and water laced with drugs and invariably the the rat would use the water laced with drugs until it died and that's that's how we developed our models of addiction that's not really how it works 10 years later we revisited those same experiments and we cut a hole in the side of the cage and allowed this rat access to what they call rat park, was tunnels and wheels and balls and toys, and the most important thing, though, was other rats, and um, other rats of the opposite sex, too. A chance to socialize and a chance to mate, and to their surprise, they found that none of the rats committed suicide via overdose, because connection really is the solution. It's the, it's the antidote for isolation. And isolation is that root cause. It's, a, it's at the root cause of uh, the depression, PTSD. Um, even obsessive-compulsive disorders can sometimes be traced all the way back to a childhood trauma of some kind. Um, a lot of these mental health issues are a result of trauma, and it, it's, it's the one thing that binds us all together. You said it, that in some ways, human experience... That's suffering. And I think uh, the Buddha had a lot to say on, on that too, um, that this this life, this, this uh, existence is suffering. So um, we've been systematically prohibiting anybody from being able to treat their issues with uh, the tools that can actually help them to overcome the issues that, that uh, brought them to where, where they're at today. Uh, I think that um, for that reason, we need to end the drug war top to bottom and move on to a new, more intelligent way of interacting with these substances. Thank you, Matt.
10: Uh, so my name is Paul. Uh, thanks for sharing all that, by the way. And I, I really love that study as well. I thought it was really groundbreaking and addiction research to see that, you know, yeah, you make people happy and they don't want to be addicts anymore. That's interesting. Um, or help people be happy. But, um, my question is, uh, if any of you had any comments on, um, helping to create a community of respect around psychedelics, I think one piece that the, the film talked about, um, that I thought was, um, very nice, very interesting was, uh, how these cultures that have been using psychedelics for centuries, Um, You don't have people like you know young kids going and and doing it disrespectfully or um, taking these substances is um, uh, in abusive context. Um, And of course, we can't do uh, we can't limit um, people just being people, of course, and, and going and doing what they want. But how can we go about creating cultural respect around these substances and these medicines? Um, so that uh, we can maintain some of that um, deep sort of um, sacred respect for these plants. I'll go ahead and start with that. Thank you. Um,
9: And I I think that question kind of nicely ties in um, to the the previous question. Um, In terms of our campaign, as we were collecting signatures last fall, uh, the the top two reasons people signed our language um, was that people said, This is the only thing that works for my depression um, or my anxiety. And this is the only thing that that psilocybin saved my relationship. And so as a campaign, we believe that right now adults in Denver and in Colorado and potentially the rest of the country are actually using psilocybin and other psychedelics as a tool for their own personal health and well-being. As opposed to the common mainstream narrative that these these are drugs of abuse, that this is something to be used as... Um, you know, to get higher party. Um, I strongly disagree with that. I think that we have enough information out there right now, and that thankfully, because of the research that's been conducted in, uh, you can say at least the last 20 years, if not, if you're not including the 20 or 30 years of research before prohibition came down, is that individuals are using psilocybin um, and arguably other psychedelics as a tool or a technology to use to. Work with the symptoms that they're experiencing as a byproduct of being human, and so while there is this very um, well, the narrative is changing, um, the paradigm is shifting, the perception of psychedelics in culture is moving towards a new understanding that, in fact, these compounds are very powerful tools and potentially medicines that we can use to 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 better ourselves. And create lasting change and, and a dynamic positive impact in society. And so, uh, to answer your question directly in, in terms of our campaign, um, we're not only a get out the vote campaign, um, but the Denver Psilocybin Initiative is also an educational campaign. And in some ways, um, well, I, I think for those of us who are sitting up here and for everyone who's actually present in this room, um, excuse me, it's, it's important for, all of us to educate about um, responsible use, while at the same time acknowledging that you know we're human and we're going to use the substances that we choose to use, whether or not that we're using them responsibly. However, because of, we have at least thousands of years of what use of psychedelics in society looks like, we can you know we have a framework, we have a narrative that we can work with right now, so that when we start talking about the responsible reintegration of psilocybin and other psychedelics back into society—at the very least, right now we have a, a framework or a mechanism of um, of a way to practice using these substances that will maximize the benefit and reduce harm and reduce risk. There's always going to be risks with psychedelics or any substance. Um, but what we believe as a, as a campaign is that it's important for individuals again to. Not only share about their experience, but uh, talk about how that experience was created. What was the environment? What was the you know the set and the setting? Who are you with? Um, how are you? How are you using it? What was the the dose? And just really start to start to share this because the more that we share about this as a group, as a community, as a as a population of people who believe in the power of these medicines, then the more information you can get out there. And uh, the last thing that I'd I'd like to say to that is that there's a lot of amazing research coming out of Europe right now that shows that uh, psilocybin is pro-social. So when prohibition came down um, with the Controlled Substances Act, the administration at the time made the case that psilocybin and and other psychedelic drugs were very antisocial because it was anti, you know, it was very anti the current paradigm. Back in the 60s and 70s. Psilocybin is in fact pro-social. What we're learning right now is that it, it can in, potentially increase empathy and potentially increase creativity. And so these are things that I believe we need as a, um, as a society. We need tools that we can use to, to develop better connections and cooperate with each other and, um, create more communication and collaboration, um, and also understand each other. So let's, Let's talk about this. Let's educate people. Let's share about our experiences, and um, with you know, with our campaign, and with everyone here who's on stage tonight, we're all creating an opportunity for a safety net for individuals to to share about their experiences. And the more people that share about it, the more people get informed, and the more people can make um, make a decision about um, how they'd like to use these substances. Thank you, Kevin. And uh,
7: you know, on that note. Um throughout the night, whoever would like to share experiences, we'd love to hear them. Uh, but real quick, I want to I think this was a great segue. I'd love to hear from Sarah real quick on peer support. Uh, when we talk about you know using substances with respect, um, I think it's also important to respect whatever the process is that someone might be going through. And you know, how can we as um, you know anyone out here that might be substance users, that might have friends that are substance users, um, you know, what, what would you say to them as far as
3: supporting the peers in that?
8: Great. Yeah, I'll, I'll use that last question, like you said, as a segue into that one. So, um, a lot of, so when Rick started, um, maps, he started, when Rick Dalton started maps, he started working, um, in the area of peer support in, so he started in 1986 and then started doing harm reduction work in the early 2000s. And his purpose with doing harm reduction work was to create a model for a post prohibition, um, society. So, the whole, um, the whole premise behind the Zendo project is to, to, to learn how to create that model, to, to show and, um, and model that these experiences, that we can, as a community, have these experiences in a safe and productive way. So I think that people use psychedelics for a variety of reasons, um, for all kinds of intentions. And I do think that there is often as you were speaking to an underlying whether it's conscious or subconscious desire to heal So I spoke a bit to my individual experience that when I was younger It was really subconscious and now as an adult I am doing therapy with people who are consciously coming to use psychedelics for that purpose and I work in recreational areas where I see people taking psychedelics for all kinds of reasons and um, It's not my you know, it's not my job to judge why people choose to use these substances. And, um, that's their journey with these medicines. But I do see them as medicines and I do see them, um, always as having that potential, psychedelics having that potential for healing. And so the Zendo Project's work is really about, um, creating a container where there wasn't one before. So in these, cultures that we see um, where medicines, where ayahuasca and peyote and these medicines have been used for thousands of years, um, it was a built-in container. And due to the trauma that we have experienced and the fragmentation on an individual and a societal level that we have experienced, that container is often no longer present in our environment. And so whether it's ceremonial use or therapeutic use, that container is implicit and it's created. Um, by the therapist or by the shaman, and in um, what we call broad recreational experience, we could be at a festival or at a house or at a party or anywhere. Um, that that container isn't always there. So when people take substances, they may have this trauma, underlying trauma, come up and not know. You know, they go, they come to these festivals and often people aren't coming to, they're like, I'm going to take MDMA to work on my childhood trauma tonight. Like, no, they want to go out and dance to Tycho. Like, that's their plan for the evening. And so when things go, when things turn in a direction where it becomes difficult, people get surprised by that. But we are all here because we believe in the power of these psychedelics to be catalysts for healing. So what happens in these so-called recreational environments is the healing process gets catalyzed, but it's not the, the container that is, um, you know, the appropriate container for that necessarily. If someone has great friends who are, you know, expect that and are able to be with that person, then that's great. But otherwise, then that can really go downward into a downward spiral, which can create further traumatization. Um, and so the Zenda Project was really created to c- create that container in that space. And not just to be a physical space for people to come. So, you know, we... We train and provide workshops for the public wherever we go and do a festival, and we also do major trainings in, in um, our trainings in major cities. And we want to train and work and learn from as many people as possible, so that we can share what we've learned in helping people in the Zendo space, so that community can care for one another. And I think that as as we do that, and what I've seen is that as people learn to care for each other and to care for themselves both after a so-called challenging experience, which is really just the difficulty coming up and then not having the right container or place for it. Um, When people learn how to work with that with each other, with themselves, then I think that a natural respect for the substances uh, happens. I can't count how many times somebody has come out of the Zendo after their experience and said, whoa, my relationship to drugs has totally changed. Like that, wow. Um, It really, you know, some iteration of that. Like it really, um, it gives people the space. And when you're able to sit for people, I mean, who in this room, raise your hand if you've either had the opportunity to sit for someone during a challenging experience and support them through that or you've been supported yourself. (laughs) Thank you. It, it it really um it creates a different relationship with the substance that you're able to have um that you may not have had if you just ended up either in your tent or your car alone for the night or in a hospital unnecessarily um or unnecessarily restrained or sedated because uh, you were having a challenging or um ecstatic emotional experience. <laughs> and so um yeah, that's that's a lot of uh, the work that that we do to help to create that respect for both ourselves, for everyone, for each other, and for the the medicines.
5: Thank
7: you, Sarah.
5: I just want to say, with some very with some very minor exceptions, before the Zendo project existed, the standard response for anyone having a difficult psychedelic experience at a music festival was to sedate and restrain the person. You shoot them full of. Whatever you happen to have on hand, uh, often ketamine, held all, I think is the combo. Uh, B52, as in a bomber, uh, and then strap them to a backboard and just leave them there while they sort of go through the experience. And uh, yeah, in terms of like changing the society, I think Zendo's done huge work in actually doing that because now there are major festivals. I and mean, we're talking festivals of, of you know fifty thousand and up. Uh, that historically would have had a row of backboards to strap people to when they have difficult experiences is now training their security staff on how to bring people to Zendo. And you know, the medical team works in conjunction with them and dance there doing testing, so we actually know if the person took what they thought they took, uh, which is always very helpful. Uh, and yeah, I think we're starting to see that change. We're starting to see the, the ability to reintegrate these things. The thing that's stopping us from a broader integration of these substances is just the law. Um, at this point, we actually have, I think, almost all the tools we need to do this. I don't think there's any missing piece other than a, uh, the political will to change the legislation to allow these services to be more broadly deployed. Uh, and so, yeah, I think the pieces are all there. Uh, and certainly if you look at, like, the Native American church, where I think the, the median age that children start attending peyote ceremonies is, like, 8 to 10. Right? I mean, these are young children taking relatively high doses of peyote on a pretty regular basis. And when you look at their psychological profiles, they're better integrated than their non peyote using peers. Um, and so we actually have all the pieces, including, I think, the conversation that needs to start about what age it's appropriate to start talking about these things. Because I actually think that, that 8 to 10 is probably an appropriate age to start talking about these substances and, in some cases, using them. Um, I'm not suggesting you give your child peyote, I'm just saying that. We do have a lot of data that, that, that within a ceremonial context, uh, strong, high-dose, relatively frequent psychedelic use is statistically correlated with better mental health, and I think that's a really important data point. I mean, I think that's an important thing to be honest about and to acknowledge that we need to start talking about what integration looks like in a world where giving a 19-year-old a beer can have CPS showing up at your house. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, we have all the visas, though, we have,
7: we have most of them on the stage, right? so, uh, yeah. So are you saying, D.A.R.E. just missed the last part of the sentence, just say no to our current struggles? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, so there was actually
5: a small harm reduction group in Florida in the late 90s, it was sort of a, it, it wasn't dancing affiliated, but they were sort of the same model of, of and the name of the
7: organization was D.A.R.E., which is a, uh, uh, <laughs> it was like a drug-educated,
5: Resist like it was. It was. It was like a drug-educated America, right? Not a not a dare to resist drugs, but dare to understand them. And yeah, I think that the pieces are all there, other than changing the law. And that's that's a tough one. This idea of legislative inertia. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this idea, but like laws are like steamships. Once they're like on a course, they're like pretty well on that fucking course. And it takes a lot to change the law. Uh, But that's that's the only piece that we're missing. Like that's it. It's just changing the legislative environment.
2: Well, uh, we're on the front edge here in Denver. Uh, yeah, we had some people in
7: the audience. Oh, we have a text question. Um, let's go ahead and hear from uh, the digital world. All
6: right, thank you so much, whoever sent this in. This is a pretty big question. So, how is ego death associated with psychedelic usage? <laughs>
9: Um, well okay so how, how is ego death associated with psychedelic usage and I'll just speak from personal experience here um, I've had I've had two profound I can, I can identify two profound psychedelic experiences in my life where I would say that I've experienced what's commonly referred to as an ego death. Um, The first one was absolutely using psilocybin. And for me, this was the experience that enabled me to, well, it it dropped the chains, or or dropped the, the the personality structure that I had thought of as myself, as somebody with depression who had suffered so much my entire life. And that being the foundation of my personality and the foundation of what we could assume would be my ego fell apart because of how psilocybin works um, physiologically and neurochemically with, with the body. And I can talk a little bit about that. I'm sure there are people up here can speak more to that. Um, but for me, my that psilocybin experience was what allowed me to see the world with new eyes. It was like my soul had a, had, a, had a new lens to look through to witness my life and, and witness what was happening around me and understand that I actually had a, I actually had a choice. I didn't have to be bound to the preconceived rules that I thought were true for myself based on my experiences leading up to that moment. And so psilocybin released me from that in an extremely profound way. And then, you know, it was transitory, it was momentary, it, it it didn't last forever. You know, these experiences, they don't last forever and I don't think they're supposed to. Like when we experience what we would call an ego death means that we have work to do. And so, and, and that means that there's there's integration or there's um things that, that we can see in our own life, either our own, our own behavior patterns, our own ways of thinking and believing about the world, that we can actually start to change. And so that experience for me, the psilocybin experience, um, helped remove the shackles that my own neurochemistry and my own mind had created up into that moment. And then, because I could see outside the box and realize that I had a choice, um, I was then able to start to... That integration process was exploring... Other tools and techniques and technologies, you know, breathwork, yoga, more physical fitness, eating healthy. Um, all of these kinds of things that contributed to me feeling more whole and, um, and just really just feeling better about myself. Um, and
3: then, does somebody want to talk about the, uh, uh, the default mode network? Anybody? Uh, I'll get to the default mode network, but I honestly think that um, ego death is over um, overemphasized in the psychedelic culture, and it's sort of like this um, holy grail where everybody's like running after the ego death, and it's really sometimes it happens, and um, but it's always temporary. Like you said, the ego springs right back. Uh, there's there's no actually killing the ego unless you're actually dead. And you know the, the point of psychedelics is to go to this this place where you can bring back lessons for your life. It's it's not to destroy the ego, it's to renegotiate your relationship with it and actually begin to appreciate it because it's your friend. You know, it, it's it's sometimes a horribly misguided friend, but um it, it it is trying to protect you and it does everything in, in what it believes to be your best interest. Um the, the point of, of this existence is to have an ego, and it is to have this individual experience. We can have moments of feeling like we are the all, we are everything, but when you're everything, nothing happens. And uh, the, the point is to have something happen, to actually be here and be an individual and be in relation to all of these other beautiful human beings and beautiful world. Um, and I think that, that Ego death is, is, it's the ultimate ego trip to really think that you can um, destroy the ego. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, we,
7: we only have a few minutes left. and uh, I two brief thoughts on ego death. I'd love to hear more from you, but we've got to hear from Katie. Katie. We have not heard from Katie. I would love to hear from Katie. Katie, um, a couple things real quick. I mean, I know you and I had, had some discussion on this, and, and I'd love to touch on this issue. You know, we, we're kind of rallying around psychedelics, but one thing that I kind of see as the elephant in the room is the racial inequity when it comes to psychedelics. And I think a lot of that is a, um, an effect of this uh, the war on drugs and how that was intended to disproportionately affect communities of color. And we'd love to hear from you kind of ideas and thoughts around racial equity and how we can Reinstill that as we start to uh, broaden this conversation around psychedelics.
6: Yeah, thank you. I feel like from a social justice perspective, it's really important for us as a community to all take a look around the room and recognize that the majority of of us in here are white and financially pretty stable. Um, And if this movement is to be truly, truly radical, how do we make it affordable and accessible? And part of what keeps people out of this is the war on drugs. It was done so, so skillfully that black and brown, particularly men, um, that I personally had conversations with, and I go, you know, I just witnessed you in a trauma response. Maybe these other things could be really helpful. And uh, the the response typically is, I can't access those. Their trauma from racial profiling and, yeah, the war on drugs keeps them from feeling like that is something that they can actually access. I think this is why legalization, thank you for doing all this work, is so important because that starts to tear down those barriers. But I notice that over and over again, we have uh, psychedelic meetup groups through acts predominantly white. And so how do we as a community start recognizing this, having a conversation, and inviting other people in? Um, and creating a container of safety, like legal safety for people, um, I don't know the answers to this, guys, but I do know that we need to start having the conversation. Otherwise, we're leaving behind some of the most socially oppressed people who could most honestly use this work um, to heal their their trauma. Right. Thank
2: you. And uh, lastly, well,
7: as we wrap up, you know, I certainly want to respect everyone's time. I will remind everyone that uh, we're going to be continuing this conversation in the Barfly Lounge uh, doing the Micadelic Podcast, so if anyone would like to share their experiences uh, in that container, uh, feel free to come out and uh, join us for that, um, hang out as well. Uh, but uh, there was someone here in the audience that I wanted to hear from real quick um, with an APAT uh, around uh, the clinical uh, research that's being done, therapy that's being done uh, in that setting, and... Um, so uh, if we could have a mic runner come to uh, the fourth row here. Uh, I am terrible with names and totally forgot your name. Raphael. So sorry. Raphael. That's right. Raphael. My favorite Ninja Turtle. <laughs> Hello. Um, Stand
3: up. <laughs> uh, what
4: was the question again?
2: Uh, <laughs>
7: I wanted to hear a little bit about uh, what's being done at, uh, at the therapy level. What's being done now currently uh, with psychedelics uh, as far as clinical therapy, and what do you see in the future?
4: Sure. Well, I think one of the things that's really emerging is that there are a wide range of therapeutic modalities that are starting to integrate psychedelics into them. Um, we're seeing a more traditional psychedelic model, which um, is, has been mainly talked about in this film, uh, we're starting to see the integration of CBT and MDMA therapy, um, and then we're also starting to see a lot more uh, emphasis on somatic-based therapies, and that's something that, at Innate Path, um, we're really focused on. So a somatic-focused therapy is more, um, it's more bottom-up rather than uh, a cognitive process. So we're more focused on how trauma is stored in the body and how the energy in the body is maintaining those traumatized systems and maintaining those trauma patterns. Um, We're working with cannabis and ketamine, and we find that these are what we would call expressive medicines. Um, They allow for the rational mind to kind of be taken offline, which like we saw in this this, uh, documentary. Um, And they allow us to feel more purely what's happening in the body. And so that allows us to process those things in the moment uh, with the clients. Excellent. Thank you so much as we wrap things up this
7: evening, uh, we always like to kind of tie it up with uh, a call to action of, you know, what what can we do? Uh, We have set up a website. Uh, There's two ways you can get there, either goodcinema.co slash impact or bit.ly slash gcimpact. Uh, Either one of those will take you to a page with resources of every one of our organizations here. Uh, But I did want to close it out. Um, If we could all just real briefly kind of have a call to action around your organization. Um, I'll give quick shout outs to the ones that are not represented up here. Uh, First off, is Psychedelic Club of Denver. Uh, check out their Facebook page, check out their uh, website, uh, it's Psychedelic Love, there's only one C in there, uh, so check that out, uh, join the community if you're interested in that. Uh, if you want to learn more about psychedelic spirituality, yoga, meditation, all these fun things that get us more in touch with our hearts, uh, Gaia, check it out, uh, goodcinema.com slash Gaia, you can also go to bit.ly slash try Gaia, if you sign up now, uh, we will give you a heady crystal on your way out, so get some of that dopeness, uh, and uh, help support Good cinema. Uh, we also, um, High Existence, uh, is putting on the Apotheosis Retreat down in Costa Rica. So if you want to puke your guts out, um, and get in touch with your inner soul, uh, like I have, um, check that out and get $100 off by mentioning Good Cinema. And, uh, uh, oh yeah, Mycadelic, we're gonna go out and uh, do that right after this. So, um, I'll let these guys give a quick, uh, uh, quick last word and then, um, we'll have a quick, uh, drawing for the, uh, winner of two tickets.
6: Um, well, We all have our, my opinion is we all have our passions and our ways of engaging. So I think first and foremost, it's most important to figure out where you feel most passionate and find a group and join them. Um, Have interpersonal conversations or get out and canvas larger. Uh, The NOAC Society, we've recently started hosting psychedelic professional meetup groups, both here in Denver and Boulder once a month. So I totally welcome you to come and join us. This is a great place to meet other people within the community and find those ways
3: to connect and keep the movement going? Uh, so my personal path to healing was, um, of course, natural medicine, natural psychedelic medicines. Uh, but they, we, need, we really need to broaden our idea of what medicine is. Um, I think community is a huge portion of medicine that goes overlooked, nature, exercise, um, nutrition, there are so many different components uh, to healing, and we can't really neglect any one. And that's all I try to do with my organization is I try to teach veterans how to heal themselves and how to become a healthier individual uh, human being. And one of the biggest components in, in that is purpose. Uh, the military taught me that if you have a, a team and you have a mission, you can com- accomplish the impossible. So now I try to uh, provide a team and provide uh, the space where they can figure out their own mission to accomplish the impossible. Um, So you can look us up, veteransfornaturalrights.org, and uh, we've got a Facebook page. That's where most of the action happens. So um, look us up.
9: Room is an influencer. Everyone in this room can be an influencer for whether or not we're successful on May 7th, 2019, in Denver, Colorado. Show of hands for how many people in the room would be willing to submit a video or written testimonial to the campaign? Awesome. Okay. Thank you. That's beautiful. That's what we need. What we need more than anything else is for individuals to, to share about their experiences. And so if you visit, Decriminalize Denver on Facebook. Uh, we have an event that we've launched called the Right to Heal Campaign. Um, you can also send an email to office at decriminalizeddenver.org. You um, can have it directed to to me. Yeah, Travis at, if anybody's writing this down, and you can see us later. Um, anybody who wants to submit a testimonial or a video to get more information on how to do that, write an email to Travis, T-R-A-V-I-S, at dpi2018.org. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing, how many in here are registered to vote in the city and county of Denver? Awesome, okay. So if you are registered to vote in Denver, we ask that you vote yes on initiative 301 on May 7th, 2019. And the last thing is um, just share about this work, share about your experience. Visit DecriminalizeDenver.org. Um, feel confident that, as Mitchell alluded to earlier, there is a network, there is a platform, there is a framework for um, proliferating psychedelic medicine into the world. And, and the thing that we need the most is for people to, to share about their experience and support all of these, all of these organizations and support the movement. Um, decriminalizing psilocybin mushrooms in Denver is a necessary first start to the responsible reintegration of psychedelics in general and, and it's a step in the right direction in terms of this conversation around drug policy so thank you very much for your for listening i appreciate all of you thank you
8: mine's pretty short if you're interested in getting involved with the zendo project uh, go to zendoproject.org And you can sign up for our email and newsletter. And that newsletter contains all the information that you need about everything that we do. So events, trainings, um, volunteer opportunities, all of that comes through the email newsletter. So um, please feel free to... um, yeah, check that out, and we um, are hoping to do a training here in Denver sometime in, two, in 2019, but we're not quite sure when. But if you sign up for the newsletter, you'll learn when that is. So thank you for being here.
5: So I've got, I've got two calls for action, one for DanceSafe and one for Humanity. Uh, So, for DanceSafe, it's real easy. If you go on the DanceSafe website, uh, our our training is entirely online, Uh, even if you have no interest in actually going to raves and testing people's drugs, which I understand is not everyone's cup of tea, uh, it's still an incredible amount of information that will help you be a more educated, more responsible substance user, or help your friends who are substance users become more educated and more responsible about their use. And the reality is, most substance use, if you know what you're doing, is statistically far less likely to kill you than driving to the guy's house to get the drugs. Um, and so if we can all become that level of responsible, then we can start having the conversation about, well, if no one in America is dying from drugs, why are they still illegal? Uh, the larger call for action for humanity is one that I'm tremendously aware of my own privilege of being able to do. I understand that not everyone is in a place in their life or in the world where they can come out as a psychedelic user. But it is not illegal to have used psychedelics. It's just illegal to have the psychedelics. And the situation is actually completely analogous to in the 1950s in this country when people started coming out as gay. Uh, It was illegal to perform a gay sex act in this country in every state when people started coming out as gay. And they would do raids and they'd kick down people's doors and they'd do all the stupid shit they do now for drugs. But people still came out as gay. And that's what helped move the conversation is people who could come out and say, this is a part of who I am. This is not a detriment to myself or society, moves the conversation. And if you're in a place where you can come out as a psychedelic user, it's an incredibly powerful, incredibly useful thing for the movement to have more people out there saying they're a psychedelic user. That being said, don't get caught with the drugs. Um, and so uh, it, it's a balancing act and one that I, I am well, well aware of. But uh, it really is a parallel situation, and I really do think that, to me at least, I feel that my my desire and my experiences with psychedelics are as core to who i am as my sexuality i think that that is as core a part of my being as my sexuality and i think that we really need to start talking about this as a civil rights issue and people need to stand up and say no this isn't about what you think the substances are this is about a fundamental human right to alter our consciousness because if you think you understand what the universe is there are things out there that that I can show you that will, will uh, at least make you question your understanding of the universe. And that's a powerful thing for anyone to experience. And so I really do recommend that if you can come out uh, of the fractal closet, uh, that, you, <laughs> that you do so. Thank you.
7: Thank you, this is wonderful. I really appreciate all of this. Uh, on that note, uh, I'm Bill and I'm a psychedelic user. Um, so there's one out of the closet um, but yeah, th- thanks so much I, I I really see so much power in psychedelics, I see a big parallel with what psychedelics can do is what good cinema can do really the the objective is a deeper connection to ourselves, to others and the world around us to help us evolve uh, as better humans and create a better world for everyone so that we all can be more happy and free um, so thank you all so so much um, again, Mycadelic Podcast and Barfly uh, our next Good Cinema events, we got one coming in three weeks, April 16th, we're going to focus on affordable housing, and we're going to be challenging the Denver mayoral candidates. They'll be up on stage. So, if you want to ask them some uh, tough questions about housing, uh, come on out and uh, check us out. Also May 21st, Speaking of Happiness, we're going to be focusing on that uh, with the film Happy. It uh, should be a really cool inspirational event uh, on that date. And uh stay tuned as we will be partnering with Gaia to do a series of Psychedelica. So more more fun content um, around these wonderful substances coming out very soon. Uh, thank you all again. Uh, check out goodcinema.co slash impact uh, to see all the information of these organizations. And uh, for the winner of uh, the two free tickets, uh, Jenna's gonna be announcing that. There's also another chance to win two free tickets. If you could please fill out uh, your forms on your tables. Uh, Give us some feedback. We'd love to know what you gained from this, what you thought we could have done better, uh, what uh, what might not be necessary. Uh, really appreciate you all, and uh, hope you have a good night.
0: All right, well, guys, I hope you really enjoyed that panel discussion. Sorry again about the audio quality. It was recorded at a live event, a large auditorium, and. You know, this is new for, for Micadelic, so um, thank you and I hope that you uh, it wasn't too bad and you were able to enjoy it and get a lot out of it like I did. Um, stick around because part two is out and up and you should go to that next to hear more uh, from the live podcast that was recorded after the event. We have uh, Raphael from Innate Path, Bethany from the psychedelic club Joey from the Denver psychedelic club or the psychedelic club of Denver we have Travis from decriminalized Denver and we have Matt Kale again joining us um, from veterans for natural rights as well as Bill Burns founder of good cinema and my lovely beautiful partner Jenna says he now so stick around for that part two and then after that part two part three will be the solo cast that I'm going to be doing um, yeah, I, I, I really, really, really enjoyed uh, this event. Again, thank you to Bill Burns of Good Cinema for putting these events on, for putting this together, for collaborating on this project, uh, and for building and creating what you're doing. I think it's really, really amazing to be bringing people together to watch these thought-provoking films, getting together, meeting each other, and then finding out ways in which we can be a part of creating better paths forward for healing, for relationships, for compassion, empathy, for love, and for making our society and culture a better place to be a part of. Healing ourselves individually, and then taking that out to the world to create wonderful things. So thank you again to Bill Burns, founder of Good Cinema. Thank you to all the people that participated, to Sarah Gale, Mitchell Gomez, uh, Kevin Matthews, Matt Kale, and Katie Klum. Uh, And Everybody at the Good Cinema team at the Alamo Draft House, thank you. Thanks to Danny Barnett and Galaxia for the music. Hey, thanks to Muse, who every time I put this intro that I've been using for, I think it's been for every episode, for 100 episodes, I've been using the Muse Uprising song clipped in with uh, with pieces clipped in from Terrence McKenna, Jason Silva, Graham Hancock, uh, George Carlin, and... Um, Maybe one other person I'm forgetting. But thank you for that. And thank you to YouTube for every time that you say a copyright claim was played, you're not in trouble. But anyway, if anybody has any other cool kinds of music, uh, art, anything like that, please contact me. Go to my website, mikebrank.com. Let's collaborate. Let's build something cool here. I'm going to start doing more live podcasts, and I want them to be like a psychedelic late night talk show vaudeville act kind of thing and uh it would be really cool really fun to have people participating musically artistically in a variety of different ways uh yeah and if you like the show you know what to do just do what you do when you like things share them tell people about them you know go to apple Podcasts, leave us a review that's that's huge that helps the show out a lot if you want to go a step further you can go to patreon patreon.com slash mikebrank you can donate as little as a dollar a month, two dollars a month, three dollars, five dollars, ten dollars, twenty, fifty, a hundred, a $1 million, whatever you want. And you get access to things like mycadelic t shirts, stickers, um, bonus episodes, bonus content, uh, different kinds of uh, rewards, and uh, all kinds of awesome things. Oh, the mycadelic inner sanctum WhatsApp chat group, where we have a virtual community of people sharing their their stories, their journeys, their trip reports, articles, videos, whatever it is uh, that's relevant to the psychedelic psychedelic community. And um, yeah, and it's just a cool place to meet people. One of the coolest things that I've seen and happy to be a part of is bringing people together from all over the world. Um, And thank you to all the psychedelic listeners out there all over the globe. I mean, we have listeners in places that I never would have dreamed of. So Thank you for being truly a global show. Uh, it's amazing. And yeah, the, the bringing people together in that Mikeadelic WhatsApp chat group that we have going on uh, is one of my favorite things to see, is just connecting other people, like-minded people, like-hearted people. Um, it's really, really cool. So gain, gain access to that by going to Mikeadelic, uh going to patreon.com slash mikebrank, and check out my website, mikebrank.com. And this, uh, this episode will continue. This 100th episode will continue in part two and part three. So stay tuned for that. That's coming up next. Thanks.